8. I sent you my pics and said to respond if you were interested. I was pretty sure you emailed me back, but I'd already found someone through a different personal site. Well, anyway, my relationship didn't work out, so I'm looking for a man again. I have a personal site at Easy Adult Ads. I thought maybe you could check it out, and if you're still interested, maybe we can go out sometime. Either way, there's a lot of other nice people in there. Hope to hear from you soon. The site is www.marriedbutlonesome.com My username is SweetTiffany77 Talk to you later, Tiffany. Got everybody's attention. <laughs> Let me make two comments that I think we need to keep in balance. One, none of us should be in any doubt about the sexual pressures which the younger generation especially, but by no means exclusively, face today. Whether Sweet Tiffany 77 means that there are at least 76 other Sweet Tiffany's out there in cyberspace, the opportunities for sexual indulgence are enormous, and what was once practiced in secret and seen as a source of shame in our society is now openly accepted and approved of. But, secondly, there is nothing unique about this situation. For such societies have existed before. 2,000 years ago, in first century Greek society, sexual license was the norm and was regarded as even more acceptable than in our society for one added reason. It had a religious dimension. Cult prostitution was an integral part of the worship of the Greek gods. Not just as a means of physical fulfilment, but also and primarily as a way of spiritual intimacy with the divine. <coughs> and the Greek city which was most famous or infamous for such practices was Corinth. Overlooked by a 2,000 foot hill, hill topped with a huge temple to the goddess Aphrodite, and rumoured to house 1,000 sacred prostitutes. A Greek word had actually been coined, which meant to Corinthianize, which means to practice sexual excess like a Corinthian. And yet, in such seemingly infertile soil, another kind of temple had come into being in Corinth. Not a physical building, but a group of people in whom the one true God lived by his Spirit. A messenger or apostle from God, a man named Paul, had come to Corinth with good news concerning God's Son Jesus, who he said had died for their sins, sexual and otherwise, and had been raised from the dead to give them a brand new start in life. So, writing a letter, this letter, 1 Corinthians in our New Testament, to these Christians in Corinth, he reminds them of their previous lifestyles. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, remember what you were. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. Then he says, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and by the Spirit of our God. And that's where we left it last week. Now, if Paul stopped here, either his letter or this topic, you might mistakenly think that these new Christians in Corinth and elsewhere are now free from sin and immune from temptation. But this is not the case, for we'll see that he goes on to write more about the same subject and he addresses a specific problem in the church in Corinth. And the problem he addresses is that some of the men in the church in Corinth were regularly visiting prostitutes. Not only that, the rest of the church didn't seem to see this as a problem at all and even regarded it as something permissible for Christians. Now, Paul responds in the strongest possible terms. Never, he says, verse 15. The Christian who does such a thing is, in the words of our title this evening, courting disaster. So let's look at what he says, and more importantly, why he says it. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. This is God's word. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Now let's just ask God to help us to understand this. Lord, your word touches each of us in different ways and at different points. So we pray this evening that by your Spirit and through your Word you might disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. For Jesus' sake and your glory. Amen. Just say no. So ran the slogan of a campaign to persuade young people not to take drugs. Don't do it. Just say no. And on first reading of these verses, it may appear that the Apostle Paul adopts the same strategy on the subject of sexual temptation. For he says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Run away in the opposite direction. Like Joseph in the Old Testament, when faced with an attempted seduction, run away as fast as you can. But a prohibition is never enough, especially when what is on offer seems very attractive and easily available. 
However, if you read the story of Joseph a little more carefully, in Genesis 39, you will see that he gave Potiphar's wife very good reasons why he refused her repeated advances and only ran when his reasons were rejected. And likewise, Paul's advice, notice carefully in these verses, flee from sexual immorality, is backed by reason. And what we need to hear, particularly those who are younger, but not exclusively again, what we need to hear is not just what is wrong, but why it is wrong. For, for our thinking always influences our behaviour. And the fundamental problem among the Christians in Corinth and so many people today on this subject is not first and foremost wrong practice but wrong thinking which leads to wrong practice. The real problem, not just wrong practice but wrong thinking. And it is this wrong thinking that Paul addresses in this section of his letter. As he highlights some of the slogans that were being used among the Christians in Corinth. Now, if you've got your NIV there, you will see that certain things are enclosed in inverted commas, in quotation marks. They were slogans that were being banded around in the church. The first and most fundamental, repeated twice in verse 12, and later in relation to a different subject in chapter 10, verse 23, is this, everything is permissible for me. In other words, I can do what I want. Now you may ask, where did the Corinthians get this idea from? Probably Paul. When he preached there and said to them, you can't please God by keeping rules and regulations. You are free in Christ. And they'd taken this idea of liberty and twisted it into an excuse for license. Like those who do take the very famous words of St. Augustine when he said, love God and do as you please. There are a couple more slogans in the next verse. One of them is not enclosed in inverted commas, but it probably is a slogan. It's the first one. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. You may wonder when we read it, what on earth has that got to do with this? Well, the inference is quite clear, isn't it? Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. Sex for the body, the body for sex. Appetites. And what does it matter for? Here's another quotation, another slogan. God will destroy them both. That is, both the food and the stomach have no lasting value, for in the end God will destroy them both. And likewise, he'll destroy the body. So what you do with your body doesn't really matter anyway, because it's on the way out. It's like having an old car that you buy that's an old banger and you drive it to death because you know it's not worth anything and you're just can eventually going to consign it to the scrap heap. And that's what they thought about their bodies. Now, this is the kind of thinking that underlay the behaviour of the Christians in Corinth. And you can see the same kind of thinking in our society today. There is nothing new under the sun. Whatever problems we face, the Bible has already addressed them. So we have an obsession in our society today with personal rights. I am free to do whatever I like. We have the idea that sex and food are the same kind of appetites and nothing more. And that just as you can't survive without eating and drinking, so you can't survive as a person 
unless you're sexually active. And finally, we have this idea that spirituality, the life of the soul or spirit, is unrelated to physicality, that is what you do with your body. And this is these kind of things that Paul is trying to speak about. But he is not just one of these negative campaigners. You know, you get sometimes politicians and all they are seem to be is negative campaigners. No. Paul doesn't just denounce these ideas as wrong. He positively affirms those good ideas which are true. Those things that we ought to know. Very interesting study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you go through, if you highlight your Bible, some people don't like highlighting Bibles, but if you do, if you look in this book and highlight every time he says, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Three times in this section alone he says, don't you know? Now what he's really saying is, you ought to know this. You should know this. But I'm telling you anyway to remind you of what you should know. And what I'd like to try and do this evening is look at the reasons he gives. What we should know and what we need to know if we are to be able to flee from sexual immorality to run in the opposite direction. Now the key word in this section, and you don't need to be a theological genius to work this out, the key word in these verses, these nine verses, is the word body. Eight times in nine verses the word body is used. And I want is to understand what we need to understand about the body. These bodies that we live in, these physical bodies. So here are three important facts about the body from this section of God's Word. First of all, look at the purpose of the body in verses 12 to 14. Corinth, of course, as we've already said, was in Greece. Greek philosophy ruled the day. And the Greek philosophers, especially those who were Stoics, you've heard of Stoics, regarded the body as the prison house of the soul. Or in a well-known proverb, the body, they said, is a tomb. Epictetus, a leading Stoic teacher, said, I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. Notice the words. I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. Commenting on this, David Pryor writes, If the human body is thus denigrated and trivialized, it is logically possible to adopt one of two mutually contradictory attitudes to it. Either to batter your body into total subjection and ruthlessly control your physical appetites, or let the body have full scope and satisfy every woman fancy because it's of no moral significance anyway and it doesn't affect your soul or spirit. And it's this second thing that the people in Corinth had adopted. The body's a prison house, the body is a corpse, therefore the body in and of itself has no moral significance. In other words, let me put it practically. What they were saying is, what you do with your body doesn't affect your spiritual life. You can live your life on two levels. On the physical level, do what you like. The important thing is spirituality. So they said, everything is permissible for you if you're a Christian. So, I'll do what I like with my body. I'll give full rein to every sexual urge. 
Satisfying sexual hunger is no different to satisfying physical hunger. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. Sex for the body, the body for sex. Now again, such thinking is pretty current in our own society today, is it not? But Paul says that such an inference is totally wrong. The Christian has a totally different view of the body. Look what he says in verse 13. The Christian view of the body is not for sexual immorality. What is it for then? It's not for that. What he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The body is for the Lord, the Lord is for the body. Rather than God being uninterested in our bodies and what we do with them, he says God is vitally interested in every aspect of what you do with this body that he has given you. And the purpose for which your body was designed is not for sexual immorality, to do what you like with it. Your body is designed to be used by God to function, to please Him in His service. Living for God, living a spiritual life, is not some esoteric kind of thing that's up there just in the ether of your emotions related to the life of the solo spirit. It is the life of the spirit lived out in the body. And that's why in another of his letters, I think we looked at it last year, one of our series, when Paul writes to the church in Rome, the Christians there, after the first 11 chapters telling them what God has done for them in Christ, he comes to chapter 12 and he says, now, therefore, in view of God's mercies, what should you do in response? Now notice what he says. In view of God's mercies, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now don't miss what he's saying. Offering God your body is a spiritual act of worship. It is the spiritual act of worship. So he says... Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, the way the world thinks about these things. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. The body is for the Lord. God has given you a body, not for sexual immorality, but to use in his service. But notice he also says, the Lord is for the body. The Lord, of course, is the Lord Jesus. When Jesus came to earth, did he come as a disembodied spirit? Did he appear as some kind of ethereal ghost? No, we've already sung about it. He took on himself flesh and blood. He came to earth in his incarnation in a body. And at the end of his life on earth, rather than casting off the body and assuming a spiritual existence, his body was raised from the dead. We'll think about it, God willing, next Easter Sunday, that Christ raised, was raised bodily from the dead. So these people who say, these theologians who say, well, it doesn't matter if the bones of Jesus have disintegrated in some tomb in Palestine 2,000 years ago. What's important is the spiritual meaning of the resurrection. The Bible says, rubbish. It's the resurrection of the body. Your body, unlike your stomach, I'm sorry to tell some of you this, and food has an eternal destiny and purpose. And as Paul will explain in much detail, and we'll look at God willing if we get there at the end of this year, the Lord Terrace, in chapter 15, the resurrection of the body of Christ means that we will ra be raised also, and we will be raised with new resurrection bodies. 
Christ died the first fruits of those who sleep. God is interested in our bodies, not just for this life, but for eternity. So take care of them. So we have these two contrasting creeds. The Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul. The Christian believes in the resurrection of the body. I believe in the resurrection of of the body. So, what you do with your body, the purpose to which you put it, matters to God. David Pryor again comments helpfully. Obedience for the Christian, and listen carefully, obedience for the Christian is a body activity. God does not address us purely as minds or emotions or wills, but as people with bodies. His concern is not for abstract acts like adultery in theory or immorality in theory. His concern is for the whole person who does these activities. It's vitally important that we understand this. Obedience for the Christian is a body activity. And so, rather than focusing on my rights, I am free to do anything I like and everything I please, the Christian instead focuses on responsibilities. I am free to serve the Lord. Now, there is also something very important that he says here. If you go down the freedom route of pleasing yourself, it will actually lead you into slavery. There's a play on words in verse 12 that doesn't come out very clearly. Um, It's difficult to translate into English. When he says, everything is permissible to me, but I will not be mastered by anything, something like, all things are in my power, but I'll not be overpowered by anything. William Barclay puts it, all things are allowed to me, but I will not allow anything to get control of me. So beware. You may say, well, I'm just going to do what I like with my body. I'm going to use it for sexual immorality. I tell you without a shadow of doubt, it will lead you to slavery. Nowhere is this seen more than in the realm of sex. Now we rightly emphasise drug addiction, alcohol addiction. Have you noticed recently in the press, quite a few prominent people in the media are being treated in entertainment, are being treated for sexual addiction. Now this leads to a second theme about the body in these verses. Not only the purpose of the body, but the power of the body. And you see that in verses 15 through 18. Another commentator, Gordon Fee, comments on the view the Corinthian Christians held. This is what they held. They said, being people of the spirit, they imply, has moved them onto a higher plane, the realm of the spirit, where they are unaffected by behaviour that has merely to do with the body. But they are wrong. Rather than the body being an irrelevance or encumbrance to the life of the soul or spirit, it is vitally connected to it. There is a vital connection between body and soul or body and spirit. And here we get this, do you not know? He says, for the Christian, your body has a vital connection with the life of Christ. Now try and follow this, it's hard to understand, but it's pretty clear if you look at it on a face value. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself. In other words, our physical bodies, with which we live out our lives, the way I'm attempting to use my voice and waving my arms around and moving up and down on this uh, pulpit here, and the way that some of you 
are listening and others, your eyelids are closing. Well, all these, all these things are using your body. And when we go out into the world this week of Edinburgh, when you go out to work in the home, in the gym, wherever it is, your body is a member of Christ. You are living for Christ. Christ is no longer physically present on earth except through his body, which is the church. I just think about that for a minute. I often think, well, surely God could have chosen a more efficient way that didn't break down so much and didn't rebel in his face than using our bodies. But God has chosen to do that. Our physical bodies are limbs of Christ through which he lives in the world, through which his life is expressed in physical terms to people who may... There'll be people you see this week who've never been in a church in their lives and sadly probably will never go in a church in their lives. So when will they ever see what Jesus Christ is like? Only through your body. So Paul asked, if this is true... Shall I take, verse 15, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never, he says, do you not know, he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. He says, such an act should be unthinkable for a Christian who is united to Christ. These are mutually exclusive unions. He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. The word translated unite there is a word that literally means to glue two things together. It's the word used of of the deepest possible physical intimacy between a man and a woman in marriage. He says it's part of God's design, Genesis 2 verse 24. And the same word is used to describe the spiritual unity between a person and Christ. We are glued to Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It means our status in Christ, but it means our relationship in Christ. So, for a Christian whose body is a member of Christ, whose body is destined for resurrection, to glue himself to a prostitute whose body is destined for destruction, while at the same time being glued to Christ, what do you think it does? Tears you apart. Wrecks your life. Several people have commented on Paul's, in this particular passage, his insight into human psyche. What modern psychologists would call the disintegration of the personality. When you're trying to live two kinds of lives that are mutually contradictory and it just tears you apart. It is the ultimate act of spiritual self-harm. No wonder then that Paul gives his advice and the reasons for it. So he says, avoid it at all costs. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins, sins against his own body. Now can I say in passing, and we'll be touching on it, God willing, after Easter, on the subject of marriage in chapter 7. This is why the Bible warns against marriage, let alone any other sexual union, between a Christian and a non-Christian. Not because God is some kind of spoil sport, but because it is literally soul-destroying. Because at the very bottom level of your real being, if you are a real Christian, who is united to Christ in the deepest possible spiritual intimacy, that is possible in the universe to be one with a person. You cannot be a one with a person who has a different baseline, who knows nothing of that. 
It will divide your loyalties. It will tear you apart. And rather than, as the Greeks thought, and many in our society think, that what you do with your body is harmless, and that sex is merely some kind of enjoyable pastime, God has so designed our bodies to give them enormous power that what we do with our body affects us and touches us at the deepest level of our being, at our personality and even our soul. No wonder then that our society today, where like first century Corinth, sexual license is the norm, so many in our society are torn apart, wounded souls, glued and re-glued together with successive partners. Now I know people say, oh, this is Christianity, they're obsessed with sex. The Bible is not obsessed with sex. You can read this in context, but it deals with it with the utmost seriousness because your body and what you do with it, particularly in sexual activity, is the most potent force for human intimacy or disintegration. That is the power of the body. Notice, finally, in this section then, a third theme. Purpose of the body, power of the body, thirdly, the purchase of the body, verses 19 to 20. Rather than a Christian being free to do what he or she wants with their body, as in verse 12, Paul reminds the Christians in Corinth and us that in actual fact, anyway, we no longer belong to ourselves. Our bodies have been purchased by God, who has a different plan for them altogether. We are under new management. Look at verses 19 to 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore honour God with your body. Now the language used here is the language of the marketplace. First century Greece. Here's the market in Corinth. But it's one section of the market. It's the slave market. And there are these slaves in chains for sale to the highest bidder. And Paul says, Christians, once slaves to sin, expressed through their body in all kinds of sins, not just sexual, have now been purchased by God. The word bought, you were bought with a price, in Greek is the aorist tense. It's an action that has been completed once for all. You look back and say, on that day, or that moment, or that period in my life, you may not be too clear exactly when, but you know that you no longer belong to yourself. You've been purchased by God. You belong to Him. Now the reference clearly is to the death of Jesus, which paid the price of our redemption. He, as it were, entered the marketplace of humanity and purchased us with his own blood. We are bought with a price, with the blood of Christ. So Peter writes again to Gentile Christians in his first letter and says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So Paul tells the Corinthians, you were bought with a price. Now there is another inference here, it's not a very pleasant one, but think it through for a moment. He's saying, listen, God paid such a price 
for your body. More than silver or gold. And you're prepared to pay a few shekels to a prostitute. To literally prostitute that body that God bought with his own blood. His son bought with his own blood. And also implicit, but surely understood by the Corinthians, is the connection also with the local temple in which the prostitute served. It's hard for us to understand this, although some of the Eastern religions still practice this kind of thing. But what they were saying is, you go to the temple, and in sexual union with a prostitute, you are brought into intimacy with the goddess that she represents, or the god. Yet he says... If you're a Christian, God purchased you. You were bought with a price and you were bought for a purpose. When God bought you back, he had a plan for your body. You know what it was? To be a temple. A temple in which the Holy Spirit lives. Earlier in this letter, if you've been with us in the series, Paul said that when the Corinthians come together as a fellowship, as an ecclesia, as a church, They are God's temple in Corinth, a temple that is sacred. Now he applies the same truth to the individual Christian, whose body is said to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God. So, the act of joining with a temple prostitute is an act of desecration of the temple of your body that is owned by God, in which his Holy Spirit lives. No wonder then that if you're a Christian and you get involved in this kind of activity, maybe not with a prostitute, just any kind of sexual intimacy outside of marriage, no wonder then it destroys your spiritual life. It desensitizes your conscience. It turns you away from seeking God and prayer. It tears you apart as a person. And you have no right to do it because you don't own your body. Rather, such a person, every Christian is urged, verse 20, to honour God with your body. Here's the conclusion. Therefore, in view of all this, honour God with your body. And no view of the Christian's body as a temple in which God lives by his spirit could be higher or so far removed from what the people in Corinth said, and what the people in our society say about our bodies. And no stronger reason or incentive could be given for avoiding sexual immorality. Those are the reasons. Now here's their advice. Flee sexual immorality. It is not just practice that needs to be addressed, but the thinking that underlies it and either legitimizes it or prevents it. So in conclusion, I want to say that we need to take radical action in the true sense of the word radical, which means to get to the root of something. Let me suggest, very quickly, three radical steps. One, radical surgery. The specific issue addressed in these verses is a man going to a prostitute. If you are a woman, this does not let you off the hook. If you have never paid for sexual services, this does not let you off the hook. It includes the word sexual immorality, includes all sexual acts outside of marriage, whether men or women. And, if you take the teaching of Jesus seriously, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, it's not just the thought, it's not just the act, it is the thought and intention. 
Hear the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. These are the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 27 to 30. So, to return to my opening illustration, one of the greatest challenges and temptations today is in the area of lust with the internet. If we take the teaching of Jesus seriously, as well as passages like this here in 1 Corinthians 6, we cannot say, as some Christians are saying, that cyber sex is harmless fun because no other person is physically present. It will damage you, let alone those whose images you look at, and it desecrates your body, which is God's temple. Only this week I read an article in a Christian magazine which paraphrased the words of Jesus. If your modem leads you into sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better to lose a piece of hardware than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And the same writer says, there is no point in having brilliant communication networks if they are highways to sin. Better to use the telephone and snail mail than to fall into sexual temptation online. Secondly, radical discipleship. Radical discipleship means what Jesus said and no more. There is a cost to following Christ. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It is not standing up for our rights, but like Jesus, laying down our rights in the Father's service. And denying yourself and the area of sexual mores and behaviour is one of, if not the most distinctive ways in which you will demonstrate to the world that you truly are a Christian. But what if this is an area where you've failed and are failing? Is there any hope? Yes, there is, but it requires, thirdly, radical repentance. Radical repentance begins with confession of sin to God and in this particular area, I believe, and we're going to talk about it in a minute with someone in the congregation, seeking help and being accountable to a mature Christian. No sin is unforgivable. Sin is sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin and the Holy Spirit can help us to live with power over sin. All sins can be healed, but I tell you this, and especially those who are younger, they leave scars. They leave scars. It means being ruthless with sin. Paul's advice still stands. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Notice what he's talking about. Body parts. And so perhaps today, in God's goodness, for some of us here, Today is a day for radical repentance. Maybe it's a day for cleansing the temple and rededicating it for the purpose for which it was made, for the service of the one who purchased it with his own blood. This is God's word. Let's just spend a few moments in quiet reflection. Let me read some verses from a very appropriate psalm. Maybe when you go home, you might like to take this as your prayer. 
psalm of David when he sinned against the Lord by committing adultery. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Let's sing a song that takes up that theme. Many of you will know it. I'm not sure we've actually sung it in church. Let's just listen to the words and reflect on them as the musicians play it through. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold and as precious silver. Refine as fire my heart's one desire is to be holy. Set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy. Set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will. Purify my heart, cleanse me from within and make me holy. Purify my heart, cleanse me from my sin deep within. We'll listen to a verse and chorus and then we'll sing together.